There is a way, and that way is forward together. This is the John Peacock Podcast. Welcome to Season 2. Well, hey, welcome to the show. My name is John, and joining me today is Dr. Sanjay Merchant. What's up, brother? How are we doing? Good. How are you, John? Doing good. Again, thanks for uh, for hanging out with us for a little bit. For uh, those of you that are are watching this live on Facebook or We Are Mission Online, uh, welcome. Good to see you guys. On Mondays, what we've been doing is talking a little bit more about the Book of Philippians, this uh, ancient letter, one of the prison letters. Uh, prison epistles that was written uh, from Paul to um, a number of different people. But this letter, Philippians, was written to uh, followers of Jesus in the city of Philippi. We've been just loving having some some chats about it. And so we're just delighted that you guys are joining us today. Some of you are, will be catching this a little bit later on YouTube and others uh, will be listening audio only on, on the podcast. So uh, no matter how you're connecting or consuming the content, I'm glad you are. My hope and prayer is that Philippians uh, is a book that you understand a little bit more. And in some way that as we've been journeying through this book together, you guys have been like, man, the Bible's awesome. Uh, I need to read it a little bit more. And so I'm hoping that God's been using it. Uh, would it be fun today to kind of wrap up our discussions on Philippians? Something we haven't really um, talked about is the there's a little bit of a conflict going on in the Philippian church. And um, so why don't you talk to us about these two ladies that are in a little bit of a standoff, a little bit of a squirmish going on? Yeah. But, um, Philippians, we talked about this before, John. It's really historically very interesting for a number of different reasons. Um, Philippi became a Roman colony, so it was culturally a little bit different than um, a lot of other places where Paul ministered. Um, we think of it as a Greek or Macedonian city, but it's very Roman in character. Um, it's the first city that, um, as far as we know, the apostles uh, ever visited in Europe, so it'd be the first European city. Um, they crossed over after Paul got this vision, this Macedonian call. He, he with, uh, with Timothy and Luke, crossed over uh, into Europe. The first person they met there was a woman. She was probably a, um, a widow. Her husband's never mentioned, and she's got some money. She um, seems to be wealthy. She's a, she's a business owner. Her name is Lydia. Probably the first church was in her house. Lydia's mm -hmm. house was probably the first church in Europe. And um, women seem to have some prominent role. And it might have to do with the character of the city of Philippi being more Roman. But in chapter four, what you just mentioned, there are these uh, women. Um, <clears throat> let me read what he says here. He says, uh, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends, I plead with Eudoia and I plead with Sintich to be of the same mind in the Lord. So these are two women that are apparently having a fight. They seem to be um, some sort of ministry um, partners there in Philippi. 
not sure who they are or what they're doing. We don't know of them from anywhere else, except these names are just dropped on us. So two people at the church and apparently um, whatever sort of disagreement they're having is really disrupting the church. So he's pleading with them and he says, um, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So these women have contended at my side. I trust them. They're, they're partnered in ministry with me. And he, he says, I ask you, my true companion. He doesn't say who that is. Um, it's probably Epaphroditus, who we talked about earlier, because Epaphroditus was a, a good and true friend. The Philippians sent a gift to Rome, to Paul, to sustain him. Um, he's very thankful. So his, his letter back to the Philippians is really a thank you note. And he's He's repeating to them, rejoice, be of one mind, don't quarrel. He's about to die. He's asking his children in the Lord, please agree with one another. Please love each other. So he's probably saying to Epaphroditus, help to um, negotiate this debate between them because I want them to be at peace. I want them to cooperate in ministry again. For whatever reason, they're arguing, um, you know, help, help them to um, reconcile. And then he adds this. Uh, he, so he says, um, uh, my true companion to help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my quote co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Uh, this Clement who's mentioned there is probably Clement of Rome, who was a disciple of, uh, of Paul. He's also associated with um, a few other apostles. And um, Clement of Rome actually ended up later on being a bishop at the Church of Rome, and he wrote some letters um, that were well known in the early church. And he was very well regarded. And if you read his letters, he writes a letter to Corinth, kind of like Paul's epistle to Corinth. And it's a sort of follow-up to what Paul wrote earlier. And um, Clement uh, and the disciples of the, of the apostles are really interesting because they write kind of like the apostles. They write epistles, but they write in a, in a way in which they say, I'm not an apostle. Remember what the apostle said. I'm only advising. But what the apostles say is authoritative. So even after they're dead, they're playing this, this sort of secondary role, and they recognize that you know, the time of the apostles was a special time in, um, in God's work in the church. So in Which, any case, that's, that's what's going on why, there. Why didn't, uh, just curious, why didn't that make it into the, the canon of Scripture? From what I understand, um, churches in Corinth still um, read um, the letters of Clement. and. Wow. That's a really good question. Why did some of this make it into the canon? Um, uh, one reason is you see disciples of the apostles, people like Irenaeus, um, Clement would be uh, one, some other very early names. Um, the reason they don't make it in the canon is because they say explicitly, we're not writing scripture, we're not apostles. Apostles write scripture, that's not what we're doing. We're just telling you what we learned from them and reminding you. So they're calling back to the writings of the apostles. Peter, um, for example, calls Paul's writing scripture. He just drops that on us. Um, he says some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand, as are many of the other scriptures. So the apostles sort of consciously knew that what they were writing was scripture. And how did um, the Bible get canonized? How did they, they realize, oh, this is what belongs and this is what doesn't? Um, it was more or less settled uh, early in the church at, at the Council of Nicaea, and they didn't say, hey, this is what's in and this is what's out, and we're going to make a rule, and anyone who disagrees with us, we're going to anathematize them. That's not what happened. They just got all the churches together and said, what do you guys read? And they came up with a pretty exhaustive list, and they compared lists, and they realized that they were more or less the same, with one or two discrepancies here or there. 
And so it was more a matter of agreement. It wasn't a matter of anyone setting up any rules or anything. So the writings of Clement and other things were respected in these places, but they asked these churches, do you regard them as scripture? And they said, no, we, we regard them as helpful. We regard them as important. We, we um, revere them. But no, the, the writings that actually come from the hands of the apostles, those are scripture. And then after that, then your conscience can guide you. But these things you have to read. So. That's so interesting. Man. I never knew anything about Clement. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so Paul is writing to, to these two, you know, to this community. He, he doesn't drop a ton of names in Philippians. So I, I wonder what that was like when all of a sudden, you know, they're listening along and I wonder how that was for you know, Yudia and, and Syntag. I don't know how to pronounce her names exactly, but that would have been a little bit like, oh, no, he did it. He called yeah. him out. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, it's not, it, if you were a first century person, member of the first century church, it, in hindsight, it's not um, clear if you want to make it in the Bible or not, you know? Yeah, right. Because <laughs> sometimes it can be great and sometimes you're getting called out. But they were very close. They were all very close. So we read this, you know, a couple millennia later, and we think, wow, your name was commemorated in the Bible here. Maybe not under the best circumstances, but that's amazing. And in their time, uh, it would be like Mission Church receiving a, a letter from John. You know, everybody's very close, and it's all within the family. And, you know, it's not, uh, it, it's not yet, you know, big public information. Um, yeah. but it would later become, which is kind of funny. And, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, obviously, you know, you and I, well, I'll speak for myself, you know, fully believe that, you know, scripture is God breathed. And, um, so, uh, you know, God is the chief editor, um, actually in the alpha course, really cool way that they explain, um, they kind of talk about like, wait a second, like how is the Bible and it was written by you know, men, you know, like 40 different authors, different genres. So, but, but wait, it's like from God. And so it's pretty cool. They use the, the, the illustration of uh, architecture. They talk about St. Peter's cathedral in London, how this renowned uh, architect who was in charge of that entire project, he worked on it for like 40 years or something like that. And so he's like given credit for the one who built St. Peter's cathedral. Uh, an amazing cathedral. I've had the um, the blessing of actually walking through it this past year. And what they said, did you know, though, that that architect never laid a single stone? It was others that laid the single stone, but he was the chief architect of it. And in the same way, the, the word of God, the Bible, God is the chief architect of the word of God. You know, he didn't pick up the pen and write it per se, meaning he didn't lay the bricks or the stones that was done by humans, but it was all orchestrated through, through God. Anyway, I thought I'm like, Oh, that's a pretty cool, pretty cool way to understand what can be really hard to wrap our minds around. And you're like, wait a second. So is Paul writing this or is God writing this? Do you ever come across that with some of your students of, of talking oh, of about course. that? Yeah, of course. That, and I like that analogy. That's a really good analogy. Um, so you know, there's this discipline that I do, it's called theology, um, which is largely based in, you know, biblical exegesis, study of the Bible, interpretation of the Bible, and then we, we draw these ideas out. Um, but then philosophy helps a lot too. And so you've got Christian philosophers who look at some of these these doctrines that are that we draw out of the Bible. So you're, you're talking about the, the doctrine of the 
authority or perhaps even inerrancy of the Bible, that um, it's written by humans. So you see Paul here writing to his friends, writing very much like Paul. He talks about his own feelings and his sentiments and his hopes and all of that. That's, that's all Paul. Um, so it's very personal in that sense. Paul isn't, he didn't go into some sort of mantic state and channel God's words or something like that. Um, it's Paul writing. But then we say, it's God breathed. God, the Holy Spirit determined what words should actually be there. And so uh, philosophers of language distinguish, so this helps us understand a little bit uh, what we um, uh, call the inscripturation in of the Bible, the production of scripture. Um, they distinguish between locutions, the actual words that we use when we speak, and illocutionary intent. Illocution is the meaning behind the words. So if my wife asked me to take out the trash and I'm really not in the mood, I can say to her, uh, I, can, I can express my um, desire not to take out the trash in a very straightforward way. This would be the best way to do it. I would say, sweetie, um, I'm really busy right now. I'm really tired. I don't want to do it right now. Would it be okay if I did it later or something like that? That would be a very fair thing to say to her. Or I could, I could take the low road and be sarcastic and say, oh, of course, I would love to take out the trash. You know, there's nothing that I love to do more than take out the trash. I'm going to do that right now. Now, you can hear from my tone. Um, that I mean the same thing in both cases. My meaning is the same. I don't want to take out the trash. In one, I'm being honest and straightforward and literal. In the other one, I'm being sarcastic. And with my tone, I mean to imply the opposite. But the words, if you were to see the words on paper, they would seem to be the opposite, right? You have to hear the tone in the sarcastic one to know that I mean the same thing. So the idea is, um, we can we can uh, think of the human expressions and the very you know Paul's very human expressions as being kind of like the um, the locutions. Um, Paul very consciously decides on the word choice. Very consciously um, even has a kind of uh, meaning of his own. He has a straightforward meaning of his own. But behind it, the the Holy Spirit is guaranteeing the the meaning that God intends to communicate. So New Testament scholars will say, when you read Paul, something reads very Pauline. It sounds like the way that Paul would say things. Mark, for example, isn't as polished as Paul. Mark is very much a street kid where Paul is a scholar, right? So Paul writes in a very educated kind of way and the book of Mark is, is um, not like that. In fact, some people in the early church were embarrassed by writers like Mark and they were fluent in Greek. So when they, they didn't have to translate it because they were reading Greek, but when they transmitted it, when they made new copies of the Bible, they would fix. So, so, so one, you know, Mark doesn't do this because it's not English, but, you know, Mark might say something like, and then Jesus said, I ain't got nothing to do right now, right? Let, let's, you know, let's go uh, to Galilee. And the Greek readers would be like, oh, I don't think the Lord said that. And so they'd fix it and they'd say, the Lord said, I have nothing to do right now. Let us go to Galilee, right? Or something like that. And these guys were rebuked for doing that. How dare you do that? You cannot change what the Holy Spirit. And, and they wondered, why would the Holy Spirit have bad allow bad grammar? They said, we don't know, but he did. <laughs> so leave it alone. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Anyway, that's, I love, I love our, I love, our, so that's fascinating. That was, uh, I think there's folks that are watching instead of perhaps always had that question, like, man, how do, is this, is this Paul? Is this God? So hopefully that was helpful. And, you know, kind of coming circling back to the, um, the conflict within yeah. the Philippian church, 
uh, the this letter, this prison letter, epistle, you might hear that simply means letter. This prison letter had the least amount of corrective work out of any letter that Paul wrote, meaning uh, this community of faith had, they were sensitive to the Holy Spirit. They were on track. They were in many ways, the example, you know, so you read some of uh, Paul's other writings and it's like, he is like constantly correcting, you know, it's like me with my dog on a walk. Like I'm constantly right. jerking the, the leash back, you know, like Jack, come on, not that way. You know, so Paul's doing a lot of that in his other writings does very little of that in, in the Philippian church, uh, in the book of Philippians. However, there is a little bit of corrective here. So he's, he's talking about this conflict and, you know, even though things were going well, he could have let it slide, but, but he goes after it. Any, any thoughts, Sanjay, uh, and we've, we've had some certain, some discussions on this thus far, but any, any thoughts specifically around this conflict or just conflict within the church? Um, you know, maybe, maybe these are days where there might be some conflict at times. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, I have different thoughts and feelings about these things sometimes. And, you know, we often think about others and why can't they get along and why can't they, why do they see things so narrowly? We don't, we also don't turn that, um, that wonder back on ourselves, whether we are not also the same kinds of people. Um, and sometimes I catch myself um, having thoughts that are divisive about other believers. Why do they think that? Why do they say that? Why can't they see? Why are they so narrow? Um, I, you know, I wonder that too. And one great thing about doing um, graduate work in theology, or, or perhaps even doing graduate work in general, um, <clears throat> that I've experienced is that if you persist in that too much, in always questioning um, either the intelligence or the motivations of others, uh, you will get hoisted by your own petard. <laughs> uh, I don't know what that metaphor means, but it sounds terrible. And uh, uh, you find that often it's not because, you know, people disagree or see things differently. Again, we, we think it's because they're either stupid or bad. That's, those are the only two reasons. It's never because we're wrong uh, about something or that we only understand in part. And, um, and that seems to be how things are now. If somebody's voting different than us, we immediately assume that the other is stupid or bad. Um, it's, it's unfortunate. Um, it should be in the church. It should be at a place where we patiently listen to one another, even when at first we think the other person's crazy and get through that feeling of this other person's crazy till we get to the point where we see, okay, they're not so crazy. I still think they're wrong, but they're not so crazy. Mm -hmm. Or now I actually see where you're right. And actually that helps me. It didn't have, you don't have to, you know, other people don't have to change your mind and, and uh, unsettle your whole life. I mean, that's something that we're often resistant to and why we don't like, I think sometimes when people say or apparently believe things that are different than us, because it's going to unsettle our life. Because if we come to agreement with them, we're going to have to do things differently. We're going to have to live differently. I mean, think about conversion, right? When we're trying to convince people that Jesus is Lord and their life is centered on something else, that's not an easy thing for them to do. We have to understand their resistance to that, right? Especially in other cultural contexts, you know, in the Middle East, in Islamic countries, it's not so easy for you to just say, oh yeah, Jesus is Lord, I'm gonna start going to church, easy peasy. Uh, no, that's gonna be very unsettling for your life. And so I think we have to, you know, understand that. But if we can, I think it should be in the church where 
we at least listen. We have respect for others. If they love Jesus as much as we do, uh, perhaps the Holy Spirit is also indwelling them. And, um, you know, maybe they do have good reasons. And maybe we can learn and we don't have to fully convert, but maybe our view of things can become deeper and enriched. And so that's why the New Testament um, encourages us to, um, to strive for unity. Um, I, I just feel like mundane human, uh, this is, I guess what we both have in mind is the political situation that kind of is really important and on everyone's mind right now. And mundane politics tends to boil things down to simplistic kind of black and white categories. Um, because that's that's better for garnering votes. That's just clearer for people. And if you can sort of tribalize, um, that's just sort of a game we play. Whereas the church um, and where the Holy Spirit is leading is a bit deeper than that. It doesn't have to fall into one of those two categories. And I think what, that we can learn from each other. And I have, I, I have learned so much. And as I was saying, you know, when I was in grad school, you know, you, if you immediately assume that somebody who's smart and perhaps uh, of goodwill is either dumb or uh, or ill motivated for disagreeing with you, man. They will expose uh, expose you for being that. And I've had that happen to me probably a hundred times. And and I've learned through chastisement to be slow about that. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll look dumb. And you know, maybe I'll wrap up with this. This this doesn't mean that you can't have strong views on something. I know you have strong views uh, on. Uh, on things that are very, very important and, and um, very well written about these days. And, you know, I, I, I see your Facebook posts. Um, and so you have some strong views on things. And so this doesn't mean, you know, that we all of a sudden like don't care or don't hold a position on something. And I just, you know, for me, I'm always trying to discern the third road, you know, what is the third road of Jesus, how we can hold to convictions, we can hold to things that we deeply care about, but we can do so in a posture of grace. We can do so in a posture of curiosity. We can do so in a posture of um, because, you know, like it says, Philippians 4, you know, verse 2, you know, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And, you know, sometimes I will settle a disagreement not by agreement, but because, hey, we love the same king and his name is Jesus. That means we're family and we can agree to disagree. I, I'm, I still hold to this position and, um, but I'm in my holding to this position. I'm not going to demonize you. Uh, I'm not going to do that. Um, that's something that I think the enemy would want us to do or some kind of politicized agenda would want us to do. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you let go of your deeply held convictions. Um, but there's a way of holding on to something um, while maintaining unity and, that seems like a lost art, yet I think there's a lot of us that are on this journey of really trying to rediscover that art um, and way of life, of still having core convictions and strong beliefs, but doing so in a way that um, can still foster unity. So any closing thoughts before we wrap? Yeah, that's so true. And for any local church and for the church more broadly, if we are going to have unity, you know, what's, what's fundamentally important is to understand what we're unifying about. And I think um, maybe one of the reasons for, um, for division in the church um, is a, a lack of understanding of what we're unifying around. Some recent surveys of what biblical Christians actually believe, for me as a theology professor, is a little unsettling. Seems less and less do they actually believe historically Christian things. 
Uh, could you imagine a Christian atheist? Uh, I think most people would say, well, that's weird. Uh, it would seem like if you're going to be a Christian, one thing that's kind of a non-negotiable is that you, you believe in God. Okay, atheists can be atheists. That's your prerogative. But you can't call yourself a Christian, right? I mean, that's just not fair. That's just uh, so confused. So if somebody says, I'm a Christian atheist, say, I think you're deeply confused. That would be an, a, a clear example. And then we'd want to sort of go a, a, along. What is it that we believe about Jesus? Um, what is it we believe about sin and salvation? Um, what is it we believe about the work of the Holy Spirit? What is it we believe about scripture and those sorts of things? And you teach those things well, John. And um, as, as people uh, rally around those central things, those are the things that we're unifying on. So we actually don't disagree about those. If, if for example, if you said, hey, I don't believe that Jesus is God taking on human flesh. I, I think that he's a very important angel in God's economy. Um, I wouldn't be in fellowship with you, John. You know, we might be neighbors and, and I might let you borrow my lawnmower, but I wouldn't say that we're fellows in the faith. That would be literally different faiths. But since we do agree on the centrality, central issues of the gospel that the apostles teach about, well, then we can vote differently because that's that's tough. That's a difficult. We can have certain certain different social ideas or certain different issues, uh, ideas about parenting, because that, that can be deeper, that can be tough. And if you if if your ideas completely contradict the gospel, I might say, hey, John, I, I think it's really out of step with what we're saying about Jesus Christ. And then we can negotiate, we can reason with each other as brothers, hopefully, um, and, and come to unity about that. And maybe, maybe you say, I respect that you corrected me, or you say, no, no, here, you're, you're thinking about it wrong, and you misjudged. And then, and then we strive for unity. But given that central basis, that's the only way to get there. Otherwise, it's just my feelings, my sentiments, your, your experiences, and then. Uh, that's so good. I think that is so helpful, Sanjay. What are we, let's start with the foundation. What are we really agreeing on? And if we are, this is why he's writing this, you know, because you belong to the Lord. So, right. you know, a person that, that doesn't belong to the Lord, a person that is not the follower of Jesus, doesn't profess to be, well, all right, well, this is a totally different conversation. Right. Um, but we got to begin first with our uh, what we believe as sons and daughters of God and, and not budge on those things. So, man, I love chatting with you, bro. Yeah, same. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for all the work that you have done. Uh, thanks to you and your wife. I know it's a team effort. The amount of hours and years you have spent um, investing in the next generation of pastors and, and Christian leaders, helping them think critically about uh, the things of God. Thank you. And it matters. It makes a big deal. And it's making a big difference. Uh, it is a big deal. So thanks to you and your family. And uh, thanks for hanging out with us on the show, brother. This has been a gift. Oh, it's, it's been great, John. Thanks for, uh, for letting me participate with you like this. And thanks for mentioning my wife too, because she went through a lot. So <laughs> grad school yep. was not just hard on me. She, uh, she That's did right. a ton for our family. Yeah. Yep. So definitely, a, definitely a shout out to your wife and um, uh, we love you guys. We'll talk to everyone soon. Have a great Monday and we'll see you on Wednesday. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to this episode for more content or to access the show notes, visit johnpeacock.com until next time. Keep your eyes open, hold tight to your convictions, give it all you've got, be resolute and love without stopping.